Greetings, students. As always, this is Professor Totten, and welcome to the History of the American People since 1877. Today's lecture is entitled, The Great War Part Two. Please follow along on the PowerPoint as I speak, and turn to the slide, U.S. Neutrality. What was the United States doing while the world was embroiled in war? Well, the United States was neutral at the beginning of the conflict. Most Americans opposed involvement in a European war over 3,000 miles away. Woodrow Wilson had been president and was narrowly re-elected in 1916 on the campaign slogan, quote, he kept us out of the war. Others, like Teddy Roosevelt, wanted to intervene inside of the conflict. So just imagine what it would have been like had Teddy Roosevelt won the election of 1912. There's a very real possibility he could have entered the war in 1914, but that's just speculation. Despite neutrality, most Americans sympathized with the Allies as fellow white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. However, many Irish and German immigrants sympathized with the Central Powers. Despite neutrality, U.S. businesses and war industries traded a great deal with the Allies. Between 1914 and 1917, American industrial production increased 32%, and GNP increased by almost 20%. U.S. exports towards belligerent nations rose rapidly during the war, from $824.8 million in 1913 to $2.25 billion in 1917. J.P. Morgan alone gave the British and French $3 billion in war loans to support their efforts. The company, Bethlehem Steel, produced 5,000 pounds of forged military products and 70 million pounds of armor plates, as well as 1.1 billion pounds of steel for artillery shells. So as you can see, there were business interests at stake. Many companies realized that if Germany won the wars, the Allies would be unable to pay back their loans that they used for these weapons. In fact, William Jennings Bryan correctly advised Wilson not to allow such loans, as it would bring about a quicker conclusion of the war, and more importantly, prevent Americans from becoming involved. Also, many Americans opposed Britain's invasive blockade, which was disrupting all trade with Germany. Germany was attempting to dislodge the British blockade with its submarines. This was going to put Americans in harm's way, since the majority of American exports went to the Allies, and Germany naturally resented this. On May 6, 1915, a German U-boat sank the British luxury liner, the Lusitania, off the coast of Ireland. The Lusitania had been in New York City, where the German consulate had warned Americans that if they traveled on this ship, it would be at their own risk, because the ship was known to carry ammunition. As a result of this sinking, 1,200 passengers were killed, of whom... 128 were Americans. Many Americans began to protest against Germany. But the United States did not enter the war just yet, because the Americans had a powerful tradition of isolationism regarding European affairs. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Causes of Intervention. The United States eventually entered the war for three main reasons. On January 31, 1917, 
the German ambassador told the U.S. government that Germany would wage unrestricted submarine warfare on all vessels, including U.S. merchant ships that approached the British Isles. The Germans knew this would propel the United States into the war, but they believed that by cutting off Great Britain's supplies, the Allies could be defeated within six months, long before the United States could enter the war. The second reason was the Zimmerman telegram. On January 16, 1917, German Foreign Minister Arthur Zimmerman cabled the Mexican government and proposed that the two countries, quote, make war together, make peace together, with generous financial support and an understanding on our part that Mexico is to reconquer its lost territories in Texas, New Mexico, and Arizona, end quote. The British intercepted this message, decoded it, and sent it to Wilson in late February. This had a decidedly significant effect on the American decision to go to war. The third reason, which we will come back to in a minute, is the revolutions in Russia. As a result of these three events, on April 2, 1917, Woodrow Wilson gave a speech asking Congress to declare war on Germany and uttered the famous phrase, quote, The world must be made safe for democracy. End quote. Thus, on April 6th, the United States officially declared war on Germany. But there was a problem. The United States only had 100,000 troops, ranking it 15th in the world. So it would take months in order to build up an army and transport it to Europe. Many Americans were unhappy about this. In fact, Robert La Follette gave a great speech saying that Americans should protect American workers, that war was immoral, and that how could you save democracy when you sided with British imperialism and monarchy? In the end, such protests were mute, and the Americans were dragged into the First World War. Please advance to the next slide entitled, The Russian Revolution. If you recall, the Russians had been an ally with France and Great Britain. From 1914 to 1917, the Russians did most of the fighting against the Germans and Austrians on the Eastern Front. These were bloody, devastating battles that happened out in the open, and by the end of 1915, the Russian army had suffered over 4 million casualties. Russians were crucial to the Allied plan to force Germany to fight a two-front war, but in 1917, Russia experienced two revolutions. These revolutions occurred because supplies and food in the country were terribly scarce, and as a result of getting letters from their families, soldiers deserted en masse. In February and March of 1917, bread riots erupted in Petrograd, which is modern-day St. Petersburg. In these protests, the police and army joined the rioters instead of doing what they had usually done, which is shoot at them. In the midst of this chaos, Tsar Nicholas II abdicated his throne, and he was replaced with a provisional government. The problem was that the provisional government pledged to continue fighting in order to defend the motherland, but many Russians wanted to pull out of the war, even if it would be disastrous to the Allies. Despite these objections, the war dragged on, and seven months later, Russia experienced a second revolution 
in October and November of 1917. This second revolution was led by Vladimir Lenin, and he commanded his Bolsheviks, who overthrew the provisional government. And their slogan was bread, land, and peace. Lenin had despised what he called the capitalist war and asked the German government for an armistice. For the next four months, peace talks occurred, resulting in a peace treaty that essentially took Russia out of the war and gave up a massive amount of Russian territory to the German government. This was horrible news for the Allies, as Germany could now shift its eastern armies to the western front. Despite leaving the First World War, the Russians continued to fight one another in a great civil war until 1923, and the Allies, including the United States, actually landed troops in Russia to fight the Bolsheviks, which is one reason why they dislike us so much. Please advance to the next slide, entitled The American Home Front. So how did the United States get the manpower it needed in order to fight an industrial-scale foreign war? Well, Congress passed the Selective Service Act in May 1917, which was a lottery-style draft requiring all males, ages 18 to 45, to register. Within only a few months, the Army grew to over 4 million men. Though there's an interesting point to make. Arkansas had the highest rate of volunteer enlistments, but it also had the highest percentage of rejections since Arkansans were so unhealthy due to the poverty of their state, due to the legacy of sharecropping and generational poverty. Soldiers in the Army were called the American Expeditionary Force, and they were nicknamed Doughboys and Yanks. They were commanded by General John Blackjack Pershing, and he insisted that American units fight under an American general. Well, mostly, that is. You see, many African Americans had also volunteered, but they were organized into racially segregated units and put on fatigue duties. One of the exceptions to this was the Harlem Hellfighters, a group of African Americans from around New York City. They wanted combat and were eventually transferred to the French Army, as the Americans did not want these soldiers to think that they were equal to white soldiers. Now, this is a huge slap in the face. You want to fight for your country, but you're one of the only units given to the French? But this is also good, because the French put the Hellfighters on the front lines. The Hellfighters proved their valor countless times, and many earned the French equivalent of the Purple Heart, Silver Cross, and the Medal of Honor for bravery. Please click on the clip and you will see a short video about the Harlem Hellfighters. Okay, so did you watch the video? It's pretty incredible. These African-American soldiers were heroes, and for the first times in their lives, they did not feel like they were under the threat of Jim Crow laws and white supremacy. But when they returned home, many were attacked merely for wearing their uniform in public. Others were killed for refusing to live like second-class citizens. But these men stood up for themselves and helped contribute to the long civil rights movement. In fact, the daughter of one of these black veterans of the Great War was Rosa Parks, and her earliest memories was of her veteran father cradling her in his lap while holding a shotgun while the KKK burned torches outside of his home.
Please turn to the next slide entitled American Homefront. During the Great War, progressivist ideals informed how the government were to conduct the war effort. We already saw this with the draft, raising the manpower needed to fight this conflict. But we will also see how progressive regulatory government was used to contribute as well. One example is the Committee on Public Information, created only a few days after the United States entered the war. This was led by the journalist George Creel, and at its height, it had 150,000 employees who created propaganda, speeches, songs, billboards, movies, and etc. in order to sell the war to the American people. And as a consequence of these efforts, anti-German sentiment rose. In fact, sauerkraut was renamed Liberty Cabbage, and hamburger was called Liberty Steak. In addition, orchestras stopped playing music by Wagner and Beethoven, and a few German-Americans were tarred and feathered, while German newspapers, like the one in Little Rock, were shut down. A more positive action on the part of the government was the creation of the U.S. Food Administration, headed by the private citizen Herbert Hoover. He led the effort to feed Belgians during the war and encouraged Americans to voluntarily save food for export by observing Wheatless Wednesdays and Meatless Tuesdays. Hoover literally saved thousands of lives by organizing exports to European civilians and became an international icon. Despite efforts such as this, many Americans continued to resist the war, so Congress passed the Espionage Act of 1917 and the Sedition Act of 1918, which made it illegal to interfere with the war effort, including recruitment. The act said, quote, Anyone who shall willfully utter, print, write, or publish any disloyal, profane, scurrilous, or abusive language about the form of government of the United States would be faced with a $10,000 fine and 20 years in prison. One person who was subject to this act was Eugene Debs, who was convicted and sentenced to 10 years in prison because he dared speak out at a recruitment rally. Though I should note, President Harding pardoned him in 1921. In a 1919 Supreme Court case, these acts were upheld, saying that free speech could be curtailed when it posed a, quote, clear and present danger to the United States. And just so we're clear, this act is still on the books and could be used to this day. The Sedition Act was also used to persecute the Socialist Party, which was nearly wrecked as a result. Because of this war, the Russian Revolution, and American nativism, many citizens began to rethink immigration, which later led to immigrant quotas in the 1920s. Inside America, the Great Migration of 400 to 500,000 African Americans to the North continued in order to work in steel, auto, rail, and meatpacking industries critical to the war effort. They were joined by thousands of women who also worked in the fields and factories. And as a result of their sacrifices, President Wilson backed the passage of the 19th Amendment, describing it as a, quote, vitally necessary war measure. The point is that the war brought out the best and the worst of America, sacrificing for the common good, but also persecuting those 
who dared to dissent. Please advance to the next slide, entitled, The 14 Points. Before Wilson entered the war, he attempted to tell the Europeans that this conflict could not end like any other, and he followed this up with specific ideas in his 14-point speech before Congress in January 1918. He said, quote, The program of the world's peace, therefore, is our program, and that program is only possible in these facets. 1. Open covenants of peace openly arrived at, meaning no secret treaties. Absolute freedom of navigation upon the seas. No more sinking ships in war. A free, open-minded, and absolutely impartial adjustment of all colonial claims based upon a strict observance of the principle that in determining all such questions of sovereignty, the interest of populations concerned must have equal weight to the equitable claims of the government whose titles to be determined. Basically, self-determination. The right to choose your own government, which lay at the heart of the American experiment. Wilson elaborated on this further. Quote, National aspirations must be respected. Peoples may now be dominated and governed only by their own consent. Self-determination is not a mere phrase. It is an imperative principle of action which statesmen will henceforth ignore at their own peril. Of course, Wilson never meant for this to be applied to non-European peoples. The last point that he made was, quote, A general association of nations must be formed under specific covenants for the purpose of affording mutual guarantees of political independence and territorial integrity to great and small states alike. In other words, he wanted a League of Nations, the prototype for the UN. Please advance to the next slide, entitled, Germany. Meanwhile, the situation in Germany was quickly deteriorating. Bread riots were common on the home front. In July 1917, the German parliament, the Reichstag, which was not controlled by the military, passed a peace resolution demanding a peace of understanding in the permanent reconciliation of peoples without forcible acquisition of territory and without political, economic, or financial measures of coercion. Basically, they wanted to quit the war with no consequences. In August of 1917, hungry German naval crews mutinied against their officers, and in January 1918, strikes erupted in dozens of German cities, including Berlin. German high command needed a big military victory to ensure that Germany would not agree to a peace settlement that required her to forfeit all the territory she gained. But this would be costly. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Final Months of the War. In March 1918, the Germans massed 199 divisions on the Western Front, including 44 that had been transferred from the East and they struck the Allies in several places, including driving the British back some 40 miles in four days. British General Sir Douglas Haig issued a dramatic statement, quote, With our backs to the wall, and believing in the justice of our cause, each one must fight on to the end. The safety of our homes and the freedom of mankind alike depend upon the conduct of each one of us at this critical moment. Germans advanced, 
eventually grinded to a halt due to dogged British and French determination in the fact that the German infantry had outrun its own artillery. In May, the Germans attacked the French and drove them back to within 40 miles of Paris. Fighting once again ensued on the Marne, where the two sides had met back in 1914. Long-range German shells actually landed inside Paris city limits. But two divisions of doughboys helped steal a French line at the Battle of Chateau Thierry. The raw Yankees lost over 10,000 casualties. But these men learned fast, and their very presence and boundless optimism convinced their weary allies that the war would not be lost. More importantly, they told them it could be won. In August, the Allies began a massive counteroffensive with the British on the left, the Americans on the right, and the French in the center. By September 29th, the German general staff told the Kaiser that victory was no longer possible because of the prospects of limitless numbers of U.S. troops pouring into Europe had demoralized the Germans. On October 4th, the German chancellor asked Wilson for a peace based on the moderate program that he had set forward in his 14 points. But Wilson responded that, quote, the only armistice he would feel justified in submitting for consideration would be one which should leave the United States and the powers associated with her in a position to enforce any arrangement that may be entered into and make a renewal of hostilities on Germany's part impossible. This message could have possibly led to the next world war. Please advance to the next slide entitled Final Months. On October 29th, German naval crews mutinied again, as well as elements of the army. Germany was on the verge of revolution. One day later, the Ottomans signed an armistice. And a week later, Austro-Hungary's armies literally disintegrated while fighting the Italians, the British and French in northern Italy, and concluded their own armistice. Kaiser Wilhelm, seeing the writing on the wall, abdicated his throne and fled to Holland. The same day, November 9th, the German Republic was proclaimed. On November 11th, 1918, at 11 a.m., Armistice Day was declared, bringing an end to the costly conflict. But note, there were no Allied armies on German soil, and this would prove to have critical consequences, and this is the origin of the stabbed-in-the-back myth that Germany had never lost the war. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Peace Conference. In January 1919, the Allied leaders gathered at Versailles, France, for a peace conference, though neither Russia nor the Central Powers were invited. The agenda was controlled by the Big Four, Woodrow Wilson of the United States, Vittorio Orlando of Italy, David Lloyd George, the British Prime Minister, and Georges Clemenceau, the French Premier. Each had their own agenda. Wilson was the first U.S. president to travel to Europe, and so he did so as an international hero. But the Republicans, who had recently taken control of Congress, resented his grandstanding. And to make matters worse, Wilson did not include a single Republican senator in his negotiating team. Wilson came to the conference determined to create a new world order based on the League of Nations. But in the end, due in large part to his own arrogance, he was forced to compromise on a number of issues, 
and came out smelling like a traditional imperialist. Orlando wanted more land from Austria, but came up short. Lloyd George simply wanted reparations and to stabilize the world's economies. But Clemenceau wanted to punish Germany and even advocated its dissolution into smaller states. The results of these talks culminated in June 1919 when the Treaty of Versailles was given to the Germans, and they were horrified by what they read. Article 231, called the War Guilt Clause, said, The Allied and Associate Governments affirm and Germany accepts the responsibility of Germany and her allies for causing all the loss and damage to which the Allied and Associate Governments and their nationals have been subjected as a consequence of the war imposed upon them by the aggression of Germany and her allies. Basically, Germany was stuck with the blame. The next article, 232, stated that the Allied and Associate Governments required Germany to make compensation for all damage done to the civilian population of the Allied and Associate Powers. This meant that Germany had to pay war reparations of $32 billion, and Allied forces would be stationed in the Rhine River Valley and would have the right to occupy Germany if she did not pay. The German army was also forcibly reduced to 10,000 troops, its air force was completely abolished, and its navy was reduced to a handful of ships. Another aspect of the treaty was the Austro-Hungarian Empire was dismantled, and we'll see the map below. The last aspect of the Treaty of Versailles was Wilson got his League of Nations. But would it be any good in the post-war settlement? Please advance to the next slide entitled American Opposition. Wilson returned to the United States and faced immediate opposition to the treaty. Republicans in the Senate were upset about being left out of the talks, and many Americans opposed the United States membership in the League of Nations, which they thought could drag them into future European conflicts. Also, remember according to the Constitution, only Congress has the power to declare war, and this would fly in the face of that. On September 1919, Wilson went on a nationwide speaking tour to drum up popular support for the treaty. After a speech in Colorado, he collapsed from exhaustion, and several days later he suffered a stroke that paralyzed one side of his body. As a result, he did not meet with his cabinet for over seven months. Meanwhile, the Republican Senator Henry Cabot Lodge attached 14 reservations to the treaty. But Wilson instructed Senate Democrats to vote against the treaty that had Lodge's reservations attached. So naturally, it was defeated. According to one scholar, Wilson had, quote, asked for nothing and got nothing. In the end, the United States never joined the League of Nations, dooming it to failure. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Consequences. The consequences of the Great War cannot be understated. Eight million people were killed and millions more wounded. The world had never experienced this kind of bloodshed. Many of the old empires had been broken up, and colonialism and imperialism had been shaken to its core. Japan became a rising power, putting it on a collision course with the United States. The Russian Revolution led to the communist state of the Soviet Union, led by Lenin, and then later, Joseph Stalin. 
There were many questions left unanswered by the war. Questions in the Balkans and in the Middle East. Inside America, the Red Scare would rage. The Great Migration would continue. Civil rights movements increased despite black soldiers being lynched. On the international stage, America's international prestige was enhanced and its status as a war financier was solidified. Most troubling of all, there was intense German anger at the war. Many believed the war had been imposed upon them and that they had not lost, but merely been stabbed in the back by socialists and Jews. Adolf Hitler, Austrian-born corporal in the German army, wrote, We must call to account the November criminals of 1918. It cannot be that two million Germans should have fallen in vain and that afterwards one should sit down as friends at the same table with traitors. No, we do not pardon. We demand vengeance. In the end, the so-called war to end all wars was hardly that. Please advance to the last slide entitled Origins of the Modern Middle East. We all live with the consequences of the First World War. In the aftermath of the conflict, the French and British signed the Sykes-Picot Agreement, which divided up the Middle East. France controlled Syria, northern Iraq, which many call Kurdistan, and Lebanon, while the British controlled Israel and Palestine, lower Iraq, and Kuwait. After the war, the British and French attempted to carve up Turkey itself, in a massive Turkish war of independence led by the secular Mustafa Gamal ended up winning Turkish independence in the creation of his own state. However, the Saudi prince, King Faisal, was declared the king of Iraq, and this led to an Iraqi rebellion that was ultimately put down by the British using RAF bombers. The point is that we see the long arm of history. Many view these modern states as artificial, that the borders do not correspond to any native logical division of nationalism. In fact, in one of her recent speeches, ISIS cited the overthrow of the Sykes-Picot Agreement as a war aim, as they wished to establish a new caliphate and destroy old imperialist borders. That is the legacy of the First World War. Well, that is all I have for you for today. I hope you are staying safe and making smart decisions. Thank you very much and have a wonderful day. I'll see you next time.